Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. Joining me today to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly. Hello. And senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And later I'll be talking to Adma's CEO, Andrea Martin, and marketing professor, Mark Ritson, about one of the most extraordinary months the world has ever seen. We'll be examining some of the implications for the world of marketing, including how the coronavirus outbreak will change consumer behaviour. So, um, you know, are they going to spend their time when they're not commuting back and forth, investing in themselves, investing in their families? how marketers are dealing with this crisis. Look at the LVMH approach, because I think it's the better approach. We should be doing stuff, not talking about doing stuff. And Adma's big plans for marketers to learn from home. We really want to make sure that the teams that are working from home are able to be developed and engaged, and they're helped and supported through this period of time. Once again, we're recording via Zoom as Mumbrella's Sydney office is now closed. I'm in Tasmania. Viv and Hannah are in Sydney. We're still learning the best way to do this remotely as we go, so apologies that the audio is still a bit choppy. I promise that we will get better at this in the coming weeks. And here are this week's headlines. How the pandemic is decimating the media and marketing industry. What the future looks like for seven without the Olympics. And the ACCC gives the Pacific Magazines and Bauer Media merger the green light. It's been an extraordinary and awful week. This time, just seven days ago, Viv and I on this Mumbrella cast were chatting about the huge impact that social distancing was going to have on Mumbrella's own business. We ended up cancelling every event we had planned for the next six months and on the wider events industry. In the days that followed, and I guess by then it was already becoming clear that no part of the communications industry or the wider economy is going to escape from this. Indeed, in the days since, many within our industry have lost their jobs. And in the days that follow, so many more will. I've been doing Umbrella for about 11 years now, and this week was the industry's worst in that time, and probably for at least half a century. So it's kind of hard to know where to begin. Um, Viv, before we started, you warned me that you'd struggle to remain upbeat in this conversation. Um, in the circumstances, I don't think feeling any other way is sensible, to be quite honest. Um, now, obviously, Umbrella talks about the media market industry so that's marketing industries that's the lens we look at things through um and i guess my sense is that that's also the industry that's going to suffer more than most so i guess before we start drilling into some of the many things that have happened um your thoughts please what on the imminent collapse of the global economy and whether or not australia's media marketing and advertising industries can survive uh, that's quite a question Tim. i've braced myself (laughs) for you not to be upbeat about it no, I am struggling. Um, I'm sort of not in the usual podcast mood where we get to have a bit of a laugh and look back on the week that was and, you know, sort of just have a bit of a, a fun chat about everything that's happened. It doesn't feel like anything fun has happened and 
as more and more updates come through and as you alluded to, Tim, as more and more people lose their jobs, it's just looking quite bleak and it's difficult to sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though plenty of economists and business owners and government officials are saying there is light at the end of the tunnel. At the moment, uh, it's hard to find a good news story and uh, that can sort of start to take its toll, uh, particularly when there are so many predictions that this could roll on for six months. We're already seeing so many stories about pay cuts and redundancies and scaling back of business operations and people being stood down in the business world as well as our industry. So it's just a bit uh, a bit draining at the moment, I imagine, uh, not just for us on the reporting side, but for everyone in the industry. Yeah, look, and it's two things, isn't it? It's the massive economic impact, but also, of course, there's an actual pandemic with all of those health issues going on in the background as well. Yes. So, and one obviously feeds into the other, you know, there's so many debates going on now about the extent of the shutdown that we should enact, but every further step we take to protect the health of people does lead to more job losses. And we've seen today, as we record on Thursday afternoon, more and more stand downs and redundancies and implications for the travel industry, which has knock-on effects for our industry too, because travel brands are such big marketers, they're such big spenders, they're such an important backbone of Australia's economy. So every time we get a new piece of that news, even though it's not directly related to our industry, that will be an extra billboard that they won't take out. That will be you know, an account that they might not put out to pitch. That will be less people spending and buying and boosting the economy when we need it. So as I say, the media industry is just so connected to consumer confidence and business confidence and business spending that as much as some people are being optimistic, uh, this week in particular has just sort of been, been a bit of a downer. Yeah, look, I I should say the reason I'm in Tasmania and I'm I'm now in my 14 days mandatory isolation because I Tasmania's got its own rules. I, you know, made a very last minute decision over the weekend to to move my family to Tasmania until all this is over. And I, I was working out, I had about three hours sleep in 48 hours as I packed up everything and drove from Sydney to Melbourne to to, to make the spirit of Tasmania across. And I just remember having, and it's, it's weird, I think everything triggers people in slightly different ways at the moment. The moment I just felt my heart lurch was just driving through Sydney and just seeing a billboard for the Tourism Australia Holiday Here This Year campaign, just, you know, s- still on the street side. And it reminded me a bit of, I don't know if you've seen the film I Am Legend, where you, they've still got the big film posters in the background of a devastated New York for Superman versus Batman, you know, the film that never came along and it's sort of summing up a whole completely different time. And it just felt like it was so long ago since that poster had gone up. Look, I haven't seen I Am Legend and I'm going to be avoiding films such as that and Contagion for now because I just don't think it's what uh, my brain needs. But you're right about how quickly things turn. You know, the Holiday Here This Year campaign, which would have been extremely effective had it been able to last, I imagine, was in response to the bushfires and trying to get Australians to travel domestically in 2020 to help boost those regional economies that had been so devastated by the bushfires and help those people rebuild their lives and their businesses and their homes. And 
now even if we want a holiday here this year, the borders are closing and any unnecessary travel, even if it's on the road and quite locally, is being discouraged. So, and that was what, a couple of months ago that we were all sort of talking about how 2020 would be the year of domestic travel and it's sort of turning out to be the year of no travel, just travel to the supermarket. Hannah, look, this is a, a good chance to, to bring in you too because, uh, I mean, it's, it's been everywhere, but particularly media agencies are uh, uh, obviously struggling to cope. We've seen small independent newspapers already put up their shutters. Um, big companies too. So we could start anywhere, but let's maybe start with um, Southern Cross Austereo. Um, what are they doing to survive? Yeah, so Southern Cross Australia was the second media company, I think, to kind of make a move. Um, it entered a trading halt earlier this week and then just a couple of days later entered a voluntary suspension, which means it's putting everything on pause until Friday 3rd of April amid kind of how it, I think basically they're just trying to make a plan on how they're going to get through this. Um, part of that plan of Obviously, they've rolled out pay cuts and enforced leave. So any staff any staff are earning a base remuneration of 68K or above will have their pay reduced by 10%. That won't impact anyone on an award-based wage. Um, All-air talent have also had their fees dropped by 10%. And between now and the end of June, all employees will be required to take no less than 10 days leave. This isn't – they're obviously not the first company – they're obviously not the only company to do this. We've seen a couple of companies do this, and I'm sure it's happening outside of the media industry as well. But I think, you know, these are the types of precautions that companies are having to take to kind of make sure they come out the other side of this. Well, it's an in- interesting approach as well, isn't it? Um, guest post um, from Henry Innes, which might even be up on, on the website by the time the podcast goes up, put forward quite an interesting thought, which is, you know, employees are being asked to, I guess, help safeguard their own jobs and others and the profitability of the people they work for by taking these pay cuts. He's suggesting, well, we're quite a creative industry. You know, it's a deal-making industry. Wouldn't it make sense that when employees are asked to take a pay cut, that actually it becomes effectively a loan to their company, which the company repays in good times with a generous rate of interest as a thank you for helping them survive as much as anything? Um, uh, Viv, Hannah, your thoughts? Does Henry have a point? Is that a good idea? I think this whole conversation around employees' responsibility to help keep their companies afloat is really interesting and really divisive. Even this week in writing about Southern Cross or Stereo and News Corp rolling out pay cuts, sort of saying they're doing it to protect as many jobs as they can. So if everyone just takes a hit at the moment, it will be better for them individually, it will be better for them collectively, it'll be better for the industry, it'll be better for the economy. And some people think that's really, really unfair that the burden is being placed on individuals who are already struggling financially. But then you see other people going past on LinkedIn criticising us at Mumbrella for having the headline, for example, 
SCA uh, enacts pay cuts rather than SCA does everything it can to save jobs and protect people in the long term. That person being former SCA employee Jules Lund, as it was in the public domain, I think we can say it. Yeah, well, look, he's he's one. I just didn't want to give Jules any more free publicity um, because I'd rather that he uh, said his criticism to my face rather than on LinkedIn, but I guess now we're doing it on our podcast (laughs) so we we can get even. Um, But it's such an interesting dynamic I think Henry has a point in his piece that we should be a bit more creative you know that that's his main point that pay cuts is such a basic financial idea and we're supposed to be the lead innovators of how to get things done and how to find an opportunity in a crisis and how to be innovative in the face of a challenge and if a pay cut and you know take a little bit less money home is the best we can do then perhaps we're not thinking outside the box enough. Hannah, your thoughts? Um, I think I'm really struggling to embrace the ideas like, you know, ideas like Henry's. I think, I don't know, I'm feel, I've <laughs> perhaps reflected by the pessimism I'm feeling today, um, perhaps reflected by, you know, the lives of people around me who are quite heavily impacted by this. I think I'm really struggling to kind of see, you know, try and, find those silver linings but I do think you know it's great that companies one of the things that happened this week when the a couple of regional papers closed the um journalism union the MEAA came out and said that it was a knee-jerk reaction and that they were you know responding to the pandemic too quickly and using it as an excuse basically and I think it's great that not Every company is doing that, of course. I think it's great that companies aren't just, you know, firing as many people as possible and cutting back left, right and centre. I think it's great that they're trying to do everything they can to keep those employees. But I think, you know, if Mumbrella was to start taking the line of every company does everything it can to save all its workers, it does worry me that that's very much a company line and not a line that one individual person is likely to... Uh, be able to relate to and of course I suppose the other point is in some cases what companies are trying to do is offer their shareholders some sort of profit still whereas others are genuinely thinking about how they're going to survive um let's talk about a few few more we wrote about News Corp this week as well yes so News Corp is another one who said that every action it's taking is to protect as many jobs as possible. So Michael Miller, the executive chairman of News Corp uh, across Australasia, has noted that senior executives will be taking significant pay cuts, you know, making the point that he's not just expecting it of lower level staff. He, him and his other executives will bear the brunt of this as well. And then News Corp will be speaking to staff over the coming days and weeks about other options like nine-day fortnights, going part-time and, and taking additional leave. He has conceded that there will be some job losses as it's just inevitable as brands are spending less. Uh, even though consumers are turning more and more to news at the moment, brands aren't necessarily backing that with increased investment. You know, but, it's worth making that point because I've spoken, the point you just took about, I've hmm. spoken to a couple of people who said it must be great times for newspapers or it must be great times for online publishers at the moment because everyone's looking. Yes. But of course, that doesn't, you know, doesn't actually matter, does it, if there's nobody advertising? 
Totally. And I mean, even our traffic uh, the past couple of weeks has been crazy good. And, you know, look, we, we've done good work, but I don't think we've necessarily done our best work ever in the past couple of weeks. I think it's more that people are all working from home. They're looking to feel connected. They're looking to feel informed. They've got a bit more time on their hands because they're not doing as many extracurricular activities. So everything we're doing is getting more engagement and more eyeballs. Our comment thread has lit up again in a way that it had scaled back a little bit in the past couple of months. So I imagine that the likes of News Corp and Nine and The Guardian and other mainstream publishers are seeing huge increases in their traffic, particularly with their live COVID-19 updates and blogs. But it's at the same time that consumer and business confidence is tracking at near record lows. So even though brands know the eyeballs are there, they just might not have the confidence to be trying to reach them this time. Yeah, I feel like um, it's really, we've definitely seen it across TV as well. The TV ratings over the last, you know, say week and a half have been incredibly interesting to watch just because news has blown everything else out of the water. I think Nine News has had its biggest audiences since 2015, A Current Affair having its biggest audiences in two years, I think. Um, Even the morning shows are increasing, which does make sense as people are at home. It's a bit of a juxtaposition there. I think the fact that people are rushing out to consume this media and yet we're still seeing these companies saying, you know, we obviously saw Seven entering a lot of trouble this week. So we're still seeing these companies saying things aren't great, but the numbers tell us a bit of a different story. Well, let's uh, let's move on to, I suppose, a medium that's more challenged than most when it does come to eyeballs, which is out of home when everyone is being told to stay at home, oh. which is something the, the Outdoor Media Association has already uh, already addressed and acknowledged that that, that's got to be a fact of life um oh media hannah they 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 had to take their own steps that to me looked a bit like survival steps in 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 doing a fundraising yeah this is a bit of a developing story actually because the most recent info on this just came out in the last couple of hours but it all kicked off six days ago we saw oh media enter a trading halt um, and also that same day it came out that they had asked all their staff to stand down over Easter and to use up all the leave they could. Um, then four days after that, they entered a voluntary suspension. I think and believe that was the date they were begin due to begin trading again and they just said that they weren't ready. And then today we've actually seen them come out and it appears they've found... Uh, equity. It appears they've got that ready to go. $167 million worth of fully underwritten equity that they have raised. They've also said... Which as I understand it means they go to the share market and offer to sell their shares or extra new shares. But if people don't take up the full allocation, then there's an underwriter standing by to pick up the rest. Yeah. And then they've also said uh, cost control measures are going to be put in place, savings of between 20 to $30 million in operating expenditure. Um, and then there's some CAPEX, CAPEX reduction in there as well. I, I must admit, I haven't been fully through it yet, but it does seem like they, as you said, I mean, it feels like a little bit of damage control for them. They're obviously on struggle street. They, I think they were the first people to stop trading. So I think as you said, outdoor media has to be hurting at this point. Look, and I think one of the things is, you know, everyone's been talking about how the, the, the capital raising markets are going to shut. So it seems to me probably the smart thing in the circumstance for O to rush out, raise the money at quite a big discount, but at least they know they've got the money in the bank now, so they're probably going to survive. And as you say, cutting costs, I think we'll see 
where they where they lease sites to write to, to put their billboards we'll see some of those actually disappear i think where they where they expire but yeah it looks like their strategy has been about uh, about getting through yeah Viv, let's talk about advertising agencies i i've chatted to a lot of agency bosses over the last 24 hours just just to, to go out try and get the sense of what's going on and one of the messages don't know think it's going to be really bad but we don't know a hundred percent you know one of them kind of said and he was just he was throwing out numbers he wasn't literally saying this was true he was saying yeah i don't know am i do i need to get rid of 20 percent of people 40 percent of people 50 percent of people i don't know at this stage and i can't think of a conversation i've had i would have had like that with an agency boss a fortnight ago it's such an interesting quandary. When do you let people go and how many people do you let go? Because I think businesses do, in many cases, have a sense of obligation and loyalty to their staff. They don't want to throw them out on the streets when there's no other jobs to go to and when we don't yet have all the protections that we might need, like rent and mortgage freezes and bill freezes and things like that that can help sort of allay that guilt and help people get through these tough times. But then you've got the other side where your obligation is almost to the people that you decide to keep and you should do everything you can so that you can keep those ones as long as possible. So the longer you drag out keeping that 20%, that remaining 80%, you're almost disadvantaging and you might end up having to let more people go. So some businesses take the line that we're going to put this off as long as possible and see if we can let go as few people as possible, but others just want to act straight away so that they can protect those ones and keep those ones who do make the cut. So, I mean, what I would say is I'm glad I'm not running a business right now because I wouldn't want to be making those uh, decisions. Some people believe, though, it is the kinder thing to do to let people go sooner. Look, it was interesting seeing how quickly CHE proximity moved. They were certainly one of the first ones to to do something public. Um, if I understand rightly, they, they, they um, made redundant their managing directors both in Sydney and Melbourne. Yes. So they made the Sydney managing director, Vanessa Nicole, redundant. And there was an incoming Melbourne MD who hadn't yet started. And they made that role redundant as well. I think with a view that they can bring those roles back at some point in the future when things are a bit more stable. But I think CEO Chris Howitson at the moment, who said it was a terribly tough decision, is just going to absorb those responsibilities himself. And again, much like News Corp, much like SCA, uh, Chris Howitson said that this was to protect as many other jobs across a wider agency as he could. Because these were quite big senior salaries, so presumably there would have been a reasonably large number against them. Yes, yeah, so I would assume so. And I guess it's those levels of management that perhaps he decided he could shed and he could pick up the burden uh, of that extra work rather than perhaps cutting some more junior people and putting those people who remain under pressure who are on uh, a lot less money. Hannah, another organisation that I guess there are a lot of questions around is Seven West Media. Obviously, they um, we've been speculating for some time whether the Olympics would go ahead, which Seven had the rights to. We now know they won't. Um, what does life look like for Seven? Yeah, it's a bit of a tough one, really. Um, so the first thing they did was withdraw their earnings guidance, which they did before 
the Olympics were pulled, then we kind of started to finally get hints that the Olympics were pulled. I think the interesting thing is there how long it took the IOC to finally make that call. You know, we've been speculating since at least February, I think, probably near the beginning of February, that it was likely they wouldn't be able to go ahead, especially as more and more sporting events fell. Um, but that ruling only came down this week. They've been postponed to at least 2021. It's a kind of a even worse hit for seven, I suppose, because all sports gone really. So their winter sport AFL, which usually delivers pretty good ratings for them or has done in recent years, also either not going to go ahead or at least not until the end of May. Um, Seven's kind of said, you know, they're doing everything they can. Obviously, they're in a tough position because I'm sure they've got a lot of brand deals at this point. They've done a lot of work with their advertising partners. So I think that's their first and initial priority. Kurt Burnett, who is Seven's chief revenue officer, has said that he's that the business is working really closely with those partners to make sure that they can figure something out going forward that everybody is happy with. But yeah, I don't know, honestly. I mean, despite the fact that they have told us time and time again that they weren't planning for it to not go ahead and that everything was full steam ahead, they had to have had plan B in place because you would just be ridiculous for them not to. So I'm sure they kind of expected this, but I think considering how much they've positioned their entire business around Tokyo 2020, it's got to be a really hard blow for, at the bare minimum, their content strategy. Uh, Viv, if you were James Warburton, CEO of Seven, what would you be thinking? I would be thinking, goodness me, can anything go my way? Uh, But I don't pretend to have an insight into uh, the mind of, of James Warburton. Yes, I think we talked last week about how they even forgot to record um, an eviction from Big Brother, which is currently being recorded, which seems like tremendous bad luck for Seven. And then a crew member, then a crew member tested positive or was in contact with someone who tested positive, so they had to shut the whole thing down anyway. It feels like James Warburton has angered some sort of spirit deep beneath the earth, and you know now he has to complete some trials because things are not going okay for Seven. Uh, I haven't yet heard what James is going to do in terms of Seven's programming and what they'll put on instead of the Olympics. It's quite the challenge because even if they do end up saving money, you know, there was lots of speculation that Seven overspent on the Olympics and perhaps the Olympics being put off would be a good thing uh, and they could save some money and put it into a different financial year, get their debt down and all of that. But at the moment, with production on so many shows across all of the networks, postponed, cancelled or whatever, I think we might just be looking at pretty terrible reruns or some kind of eSports or something. No no official word yet. I should be clear on what they're going to put to air in July instead of the Olympics. But it won't draw the same viewers as the Olympics would have. And Seven had made huge promises, you know, around the 60% commercial free-to-air share during that time. Obviously, it won't have to stick to those promised figures because it won't be broadcasting what it thought it would, but it's quite it's quite a blow. And I don't know if we're just going to be seeing reruns of 80s sitcoms instead. Next, the Bauer takeover of Pacific Magazines gets the green light. So I suppose one bit of good news this week for Seven West Media is that the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, has given the go-ahead for 
SWM to sell Pacific magazines to Bauer Media. Um, Hannah, I suppose the question now is, and, and, and Viv too, is this all academic? Do you think Bauer even wants them anymore? Do we, do we know if they want them? Well, I can't answer that question for you officially, Tim, because uh, as we record on Thursday afternoon, uh, I was meant to have already had a chat that I'd scheduled in with the CEO of Bauer Media, Brendan Hill, to discuss all things approval. And the plug was pulled on that interview very last minute. And Now, often people I... just have to cancel for timing. Anything to make us feel that it might be sinister? Uh, look, I wouldn't use the word sinister, but I, I'd put on my sceptical hat, if, if nothing else, only because I sort of flagged to them that we had this podcast and we'd be wanting to discuss it. And whenever there's mergers, particularly at an organisation where there's so much crossover, you know, in the magazine titles and in the jobs of the staff, the market would want to hear about how it's going to be structured, how they'll determine which magazines survive, what implications there are for staff. Sent a huge list of questions and I've just been told, unfortunately, I have no further updates and I appreciate this is tricky for you. So I just feel like not commenting on something so big at this time when it's meant to be a positive news story, you know, it's not something that they should be trying to sweep under the rug. They both really wanted this deal to be done. They both pushed back when the ACCC flagged its initial concerns that it would be bad for competition and bad for consumers. Now they've got the deal. I'm just a bit surprised that they're not talking about it and they're not promoting it as good news. I mean, James Warburton at Seven has had something go his way. He's he's happy. He's put out a statement that it's good for everybody and he's pleased the deal's been done. But all, all quiet on the bow front, which I just think is unusual when you're a happy, uh, successful acquirer of a company. Anna, this is one of those tricky ones because the world will probably know by the time this goes up whether you're right or wrong. Do you reckon it's going to happen? I don't know. That is tricky. Um, There was a very interesting uh, debate going on this morning about whether in the current climate Pacific magazines is still worth the $40 million that it was originally sold for. Obviously that was, those conversations started six months ago. It was a very different time for the industry. And I don't know is the answer to your question. I can see from Seven's point of view, this is great, especially currently when they probably need a little bit of cash. And also James just needs a win. But I do wonder whether maybe at the moment, considering how badly the market is, you know, it's facing some really tough times, whether maybe now those women's gossip mags don't look like they're as tantalizing a buy as they were six months ago. Well, who's going to be able to go outside and buy them quite soon? That's true. true. And, and the and celebrities the won't be out. Nobody will be able exactly. to get the photos. Exactly. Yes. The, the paparazzi won't be able to chase Jennifer Aniston down saying she's pregnant for the 700th time this year because she'll be in <laughs> lockdown. So what will they even produce? Next, I'll be speaking to marketing commentator Mark Ritson and Adma boss Andrea Martins about their new initiative to help marketers who are working from home boost their skills. So joining me now via Zoom are Adma's CEO, Andrea Martins, and marketing professor, Mark Ritson. In a moment, we'll talk about what Adma is planning for working from home marketers. Um, But first, let's do what 
everybody seems to be doing at the moment um, when they they, they, they they do these things. Uh, and let's talk about your remote location setup. Andrea, where are you in the world? I'm currently in Sydney. I've been moved out to the balcony by my family, so I'm surrounded by two children, a husband and a multitude of pets. And uh, But it is working and operational and I have my team remotely via Teams constantly. And Mark, um, like myself, uh, you're in uh, you're in Tasmania today. But I'm in the south, Tim, which, as you know, is far superior to the northern <laughs> climes that you inhabit. <laughs> the, the, the the northwestern climes. I like to think of you know the undiscovered first album, whereas you're you know it was. Uh, I like the first two albums best. But uh, you're in the uh, you're in the Huon Valley uh, with a, with a view out across the Derwent. Otherwise known as the Tasmanian Riviera, I believe, is the growing <laughs> phrase for it down here. But yeah, my wife is from here. So we've lived here off and on for about 15 years. So it's suddenly become a really kind of good place to be because, you you know, you this is normal life. I mean, you, you have social isolation down here you know, at the best of times. So really, there's nothing different down here at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Andrea, um, I might just start with you, trying to get a bit of a snapshot, really. Um, I'm sure you've been talking a lot to your members in the last few days. How is everyone feeling? Look, I think it's fair to say this is something that no one's ever really experienced before um, or could have predicted. Um, Uncertainty and unknown are probably the two things that I'm hearing the most, and that's what's unsettling um, the members. Um, but also we're seeing the differences in experience by industry. Uh, they're vastly different. So some are going through boom and uh, they're challenged with huge demand and not enough supply chain. Toilet paper is probably a good example. Um, others bust and, um, and others dark, depending on the market. So um, there's, there is a a real um, r- wide range of, um, of challenges that they're facing. But uncertainty and unknown is probably the constant. Well, Mark, I guess you were probably still in university for the downtown turn of 92, but you're obviously certainly around for the GFC. Um, have you ever seen it as, as, as tough as this? Uh, sort of. I mean, you're right. I came out of uni just as that was my first year in the full-time labor force was around about 92 and it was very brief and painful. Um, but I was working predominantly for LVMH in the 0708 thing that, that hit in the GFC. So we were particularly worried at the time that, you know, the growth had been fantastic and suddenly we thought it turned out incorrectly that luxury goods would get hammered in the GFC. And in fact, and it might be a lesson for the, whatever we're going to call this period now, the COVID crisis, the top of the market doesn't get affected very much at all. It's, of course, it's the middle where things contract very dramatically. So, yeah, I mean, let's see how this one plays out. My sense is three months of intense, um, unprecedented pain, and then I think nobody knows. You know I mean? As we roll into July, it'll be interesting to see where we are then. And I don't think anyone can predict right now where we're going to be. But we've got three months for sure, right? Now, Andrea, before you were with Adma, you, you had a couple of quite big marketing roles, uh, including Unilever. If you'd been in that world at this point, how would you have been thinking about things? I think one of the things with 
um, I, I had the benefit of being in consumer goods or FMCG, and so I think within the Unilever business, you're you're running a business essentially. And whilst you obviously don't experience booms and busts to the extent that we're seeing here now, you you, you are equipped to um, be able to handle and moderate through downturns and upturns. So looking at your your supply chain, looking at your team, your resourcing, your headcounts, your spend, you look at it as an entire as an entire business. Um, that doesn't, I would say there are elements of those um, experiences that give you skills to be able to prepare you for something like this, but I don't think something like you are ever fully prepared for something like this. So if I was in, in the roles now, I think I'd be drawing on the experience of those around me and the experiences that I'd had previously, um, but importantly, collaborating amongst peers, reaching out to the industry and also listening to my consumers and my customers. Um, I think they're the things that, that they would be consistent irrespective of where I was working. And how do you both think in the long term consumers are going to be changed by this? You know, Do you think the, the psyche of consumers is going to be different firstly after this time effectively in lockdown and I guess secondly you know in a, in a market where the rug's been pulled out you know the the reports are that one in ten Australians lost their job this week that number yeah. could even double how's that going to change how consumers behave in the long term my personal take on it and again everyone's you know making this up at this point we are in unprecedented time but my personal take on it is I think the immediate impacts of the recession that this creates are probably more impactful than any sort of long-term sociological differences that happen. You know, consumers are, are pretty amazing creatures. They, you know, people spring back to life, you know, incredibly quickly from crises and other things. Um, so I think it's more the economic repercussions, the loss of jobs, the impact on spending that might be, you know, a year or more in the, in, in the endurance that I think we'll see the biggest impact of. I wonder organisationally whether the big changes will come in forcing us to do what we're doing here, which is abandon meetings, finally embrace, you know, tele-meetings, video meetings. I wonder if that may be the place where the biggest impact is going to happen. You know, universities haven't really embraced online learning much Suddenly they have to. They're going to have to do it for probably at least two or three semesters. Does that get them over a hump that maybe they were about ready to get over? So I wonder if that's the big impact, Tim, is that we see companies and universities embracing more virtual interactions in the future. Andrea, same question to you. So I think from a, um, from a way of working in a team's perspective, I think we will hope funnily that we've been been waiting for in terms of the move towards agility in how it's not matter it doesn't matter where you're working from but it is the output that you that you provide and I'm hoping that culturally organizations will see that their teams have coped yes they need different types of resource they need different types of support and you ultimately as a leader need to interact with them quite quite differently um, but that will hopefully bring about uh, th- that sort of change that I think we've been long working and hope- hoping for, and, and 
obviously also help from a global perspective in terms of creating better global interactivity. Yeah, would you agree with Mark that from the consumer perspective, they'll potentially bounce back quite fast without too much of a sort of scarring of the psyche? I think that they will ultimately bounce back relatively quickly. Um, I think what I am seeing, though, is that there is a lot of careful choices being made. People are considering how they spend their time. So, um, you know, are they going to spend their time when they're not commuting back and forth, investing in themselves, investing in their families? I think families are probably spending more time together now than they have for, (laughs) we definitely are, for a very long time. Um, not so sure that the 18-year-old's so stoked about that, I've got to say. But, um, but I think that ultimately changes the environment that consumers operate in. So um, maybe reconsidering the essential and the non-essential. Well, look, uh, one of the things that there's, there's, I, I, I guess has been freed up with this time is professional development as well, which is one of the reasons we're chatting um, today as this podcast goes up Thursday, 26th of March. Um, uh, Adma and y- yourself, Mark, have been collaborating on um, uh, putting together a 12-week uh, online course um, with... Um, what you're describing as a virtual live experience. So um, you might have to explain to me what virtual live is, but also, you know, maybe we can chat about the concept itself a bit. Yeah, I mean, I was delighted. I mean, it's Adma's, to Adma's credit, they wanted to do something for members and other marketers working from home. And I, you know, I've known Andrea a long time, so I was delighted when she asked me. Um, And we've approached it really in in the mode of, if you think about working from home, the working part is awfully serious and professional and there's nothing wrong with that. And the home part is more casual and uh, a little bit more uh, laid back, should we say. So we're trying to create a, a genuinely different sort of learning experience. So the plan is that over the next three months, 12 weeks, I'll run a, um, a, a, a virtual live lecture on a Monday lunchtime and leave a few resources for marketers to then explore and not just readings because I think we need podcasts and videos and stuff too and then come back on the Thursday lunchtime and and, and answer their questions and have a discussion about that particular topic and we're going to cover pricing and we'll cover brand equity and we'll cover you know the long and the short of it I've picked the 12 topics that I think most marketers either want to know more about or should learn something about and I think it's a great chance for marketers to develop their skills and we're not going to make it some patsy, you know, course about working from home and how to handle that. We're going to use advanced and applied materials and and anyone that comes through the program will, I think will benefit greatly from it. And you'll be doing that from uh, where you're talking to us in the human or will you be in uh, uh, um, a a more reliable uh, broadband spot for that Uh one? Yeah, I think you got me. I think I'll probably head to Hobart where we've got a, a really much more reliable network. Um, so it's still from home, but a much smaller, less nice, but more reliable home uh, in the middle of Hobart. So we'll try that. But yeah, we, I'll be in my joggers uh, if you're lucky and um, we'll keep it casual. You know, I mean, the content's pretty, pretty advanced, but the style we're going to try and keep casual and interactive as we go, because I think people have time, Tim. I think, you know, I, I maybe I'm too bullish about working from home, given I've done it for a long time for most of my career, but I, you get a lot of time back. 
you know, the 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 two hour average commute, the one and a bit hours lunchtime uh, meandering, the you know occasional stopping by of a colleague to talk about stuff that frankly isn't worth talking about. You take that out of the average marketer's day, and we've got an hour to two hours, and we only really require three or four hours a week to, to do this program well. So I think we can take out wasteful time and replace it with very useful time. And I think that could be one of the few silver linings of this whole COVID thing. And just before I, I bring Andrea in, um, it's one of the things that fascinates me is, is you know, there, there, there was a concept that Australia perhaps wasn't quite there when it came to people being willing to pay for online learning versus paying to come Mm. to conferences or expos or whatever. You were one of the few people who's actually made it work with your mini MBA. So this isn't the first Mm. time you've done this stuff. What, what do you think you were doing differently that got people, I guess, giving you that trust of signing up quite big dollars for an online experience when there isn't that much evidence that other people are making it work? It's a good question, and I'm going to sound like an ass when I answer it. I think the problem with most online learning is the people that are teaching it are very bad, uh, both teaching and knowing anything about marketing. And I don't think it was the technology that was ever the problem. It was like if you put someone who's not very good at marketing or training in a classroom, they're going to die. Similarly, that's going to happen online. So I think that, the, frankly, the crucial difference is you know, I taught at some of the top business schools, wow, 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 and won lots of prizes. So I had the content and 25 years of doing it before we started doing it online. And I think that's the big difference. And that's what's made, you know, that's what's made the effect of, of the last few years for me so in, in, in impressive is just that we've been able to create something that isn't just replicable versus the classroom. I've got to tell you these days, I, I would put the virtual experience of, online teaching done well above that of the classroom. Um, And that's not something I ever expected I would end up saying, but it's apparent to me now that that's the case. And this price, 445 for members, 495 for non-members, that's quite a discount on your mini MBA. What what aren't they getting that you do get with the mini MBA? Or is this just pricing strategy? It's a good question. We have, I mean, under Andrea's not inconsiderable pressure. We we didn't, well, you know, we, we hope to make some money for Adma from this, obviously. I don't think this is not-for-profit stuff. But at the end of the day, we are designing a product that is aimed at a lot of people getting something out of a difficult time. So, yeah, I mean, it's a heartbreaking price from a supplier point of view, but it's a great one, I hope, from a consumer point of view. The mini MBA that I run globally, the difference, and it is, you know, five times more expensive. Um, there's a difference there in terms of the readings and the examinations and the interactions that go on. But in terms of the time spent and the content, obviously, I'm not going to do a worse job um, on this program. I'm going to do a, a live job using all my all my knowledge and, and contact. So. Yeah, it, we've did, look. Let, let's be honest. It's not for profit, but it's it's designed for hopefully a lot of people getting a lot from something in a time where you know it's it, we we need to we need to find something to get people through. And Andrea was very f- very firm on how we were going to price this, and I and I complied accordingly. 
<laughs> and Andrea, where do you see the skills gap or the knowledge gap of your members? So, look, I think if we have a look now, um, what, we're, what we're hearing, so it, it, it varies, but if we think now to now, what do they need at this point in time? What do the marketers need to be able to do? They need to have the agility that they probably haven't necessarily had, um, always had in the past, yeah? So in terms of the agility to be able to pivot and, and really understand what do their customers want? What are their what are the products that they need to be able to nuance at this point in time? Where are they distributing it through? What does the pricing need to look like? They're the decisions that they need to make right now in order to be able to enable their businesses to continue to keep going and also growing. Now, every marketer in, in my belief, and, and this is one of the reasons that Mark and I have worked together for so long, um, needs that strategic foundation. Um, it needs to underpin any tactical decisions that they need to make um, and that is no different now. And um, one of the things is we're seeing is that those consumers are shifting so quickly. Being ready to understand those consumers and make choices as a result of that is something that the marketers um, really need to be attuned to. So what we were hearing from, from the industry and a lot of the industry leaders was we have this time um, we really want to make sure that the teams that are working from home are able to be developed and engaged and they're helped and supported through this period of time. And part of that is we need we need education and we need a program that is going to do that. I've seen the benefits of having two teams work with Mark closely and go through the programs and I've seen the direct impact on their skills and their abilities but also their engagement. Um, to, the, to the earlier point on, no, every online training is not the same. You feel like you are in, you are there. You are being, uh, it is like a consultative workshop when you're part of these, part of Mark's program. Um, you also get a chance for good engagement and you get a chance for a laugh as well. And that is not a bad thing, right? Because that makes um, that makes learning and it makes it memorable and it really absorbs um, it helps the teams absorb it. So um, in terms of what this will give them, it gives them that strategic foundation to help them navigate where they need to go during this time and set their brands up um, as we then come out of it. By the time just to add to that, add to that Tim, it, it's, it's exactly right. What we're trying to do is we're trying to pull them back into strategy a bit, which often gets ignored. And, and we, you know, what is strategy and all of those questions we really want to answer. But even at the tactical level, if you look at the response of the last two weeks to COVID, it's predominantly still communications based. And I think you again see the weaknesses of many marketing teams where they are effectively just the communications department. We don't, there's some great examples, but not that many of working on product modifications, changing the pricing system, altering distribution. You know, even at the tactical level, I think comms is the least, the best COVID communications campaign right now is not to talk about it, but get on with it. And I think, you know, we're not making a course that's designed to be just about COVID-19, but clearly we'll have to talk to the, you know, each topic each week. We have a section where we're going to you know, address those challenges as well. And it would be nice to see more companies doing more than just comms about this, you know. I was wondering that because I was thinking about something like the Second World War 
and it felt like you know every ad ad for you know pears soap or something always had some sort of context around the war you don't necessarily accept that every piece of marketing is going to need to overtly nod towards the situation the world's in <clears throat> no I, I think the opposite i think everyone knows you know and i think the challenge is really to get to get on with business i mean I, there's a great example if you look at what LVMH did with hand sanitizers and what BrewDog, the, the Scottish brewery, have done. So if you haven't seen it, both companies have turned their manufacturing processes to make hand sanitizers. And, and I don't want to have a go at BrewDog. I think it's a great thing. But they communicated they were doing it about a week ago with a very snazzy new label and new packaging. And then they started distributing it, I think, yesterday to a hospital. And, and the, again, that's a great thing. But there was a lot of communications and a lot of labels and a lot of PR about it. And then they started to produce a few hand sanitizers. The LVMH gang had 19 tons of hand sanitizer in hospitals before the news got out that they were doing it. And they did it because the French government asked one of their board members to do it. And I think, you know, I'm not saying BrewDog is, is bad at this. I'm saying... Look at the LVMH approach because I think it's the better approach. We should be doing stuff, not talking about doing stuff. You know what I mean? I think that speaks to, you know, I'm a big fan of what Uber are doing at the moment, Uber Eats. They're tweaking their program to let small restaurants get involved at a much lower level. Doorstep deliveries aren't an easy thing to do instantaneously, but they're changing their software. These are the kind of responses we want to see more of from marketers, not these emails saying, I feel your pain, how are you doing? That's not. It's not useful right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I did want I to. I wanted to get your thoughts and also Andrea's thoughts on, um, you know, picking up the newspapers the last couple of days. And it's it's felt like a wall of ads from banks that, with ads having different versions of we're here to help. Have you seen much yes. distinctiveness in how the financial no. brands have been handling it? None at all. And I think it's Ryan Wallman, the famous uh, Australian copywriter, who said, you know, Yesterday, he said, I had no idea how many brands were there for me in my moment of need. You know, it's 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 all a bit of guff. And I think what all these companies should be doing is not taking full page ads, but helping drive the economy and, and keeping keeping business ticking over. You know, that's what we need companies to do at the moment. And I think, you know, again, my favorite example was the Danish supermarket. I don't know if you saw it. They're the only good marketers on the planet right now. So every other supermarket is going please don't take more than one toilet paper roll. And the Danish supermarket um, are the opposite, are, are going, right, you, one will cost you basically $6 for hand sanitizer, and if you want a second one, it'll cost you $1,000. <laughs> and, of course, your FPOS system can price that way. Normally, we price down. You buy a second one 50% off. You buy a second one, it's $1,000. That's the kind of agility we want to see, not releasing you know, um, beautiful advertising or McDonald's separating their arches, that screams superficiality, I think. And that's that's not what we want right now. We want tangible money-making activities that also help society and, and satisfy value. And that's what marketers should be doing if they're not just communication experts, you know. And Andrea, it might be putting you in a slightly difficult position to ask you to uh, <laughs> criticise marketers, given that, that that often represents your membership. Um, so I might put it a different way. Uh, what's what's impressed you from the marketing world so far? So um, 
those that are really, really taking the time to listen to their customers and putting themselves in their customers' shoes. And that sounds like it's easier said, it is easier said than done. Um, because at the moment they don't necessarily have the data to rely on, but they do. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, conversation yesterday with Stuart Tucker from High Pages. And when we think of his, his um, customers from a trade B2B side are his tradies and small businesses and really working with his marketers to encourage them to understand, think of how these small businesses are feeling. They don't know whether they can trade in a week's time. At the same time, someone else may well have a major sewerage issue that needs fixing. Um, but really encouraging those marketers to get under the skin of what it feels like to be a high pages trading and what it feels like to be a, a client who doesn't necessarily want anybody in their house at the moment because of all the COVID restrictions, yeah? So that's, and it's those sorts of conversations. It's when I hear leaders that are having those sorts of conversations with their teams and encouraging them and, and taking them on that route that I think um, I think that's what we need more of. Well, just finally for both of you, I mean, we're, you know, there's only so many times you can use the word unprecedented or talk about what the <laughs> time it is. Um, what do you, what do you both think when we look back at this, what are the things we're going to be thinking, thinking about when we, when we look back or do we just not know that yet? Oh, we've got a good idea, Tim. I mean, However long this lasts, the thing that you've got to instill in marketers is the pain of pulling back from investing in brand now is, is going to cost them so much more in the future. However long this crisis lasts, the, the key lesson from the GFC and from the recessions before is that you have to maintain the branding light in the darkness to some degree. That's partly because switching it back on again later is much harder. And it's partly because, frankly, the short-term performance marketing isn't going to do much for you either right now. You know, if you're working in the travel industry, clearly there's nothing you can do with your short-term budget. And clearly you don't have hardly any budget to spend on marketing at all. But that which you do have should be about, I think, maintaining the brand and trying to stay out there to some degree. Because if you turn everything off, turning it back on again, and there's some very good data on this, is spectacularly hard. Um, if you look at Brand Z, the, the famed brand equity measurement tool, they've got great data on what happened during the GFC and who did and didn't continue to invest in marketing and how quickly they came out of the post-GFC phase. So I think there's a real trick here as well, which is clearly it's a new normal. Clearly we have to manage for the day-to-day -day business right now and staying in business and managing liquidity but there's still the requirement to keep an eye on the long term because this too will pass and, and we need to be still thinking long term even though the short term is so crappy at the moment. Andrea, same question. Um, yeah, I think to that point, uh, being consistent with what the brand stands for, so really going through and not making choices in this short term that'll essentially compromise really what the core DNA of the brand is. I think that'll be something as a learning um, where absolutely in terms of pivoting to opportunity but staying consistent with what, what the core of the brand is is the first thing. And then I think the other thing is collaborate. 
So what I'm what I'm hearing a lot from the industry leaders um, is that they are seeking to be able to rely on each other and communicate with each other of how do we get through this? How do we? What can we learn from this? What are some of the ways that we can help each other other out? And I'm hoping that that is a learning that comes not only during this time of crisis, but something that we see ongoing. Um, be that at a CMO level, but right through to the teams. Enable these teams to work together to get to a to get to a better place. And uh, just finally, the marketing masterclass presumably will find all of the details on the Adma website. Indeed. Andrew and Mark, thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you. Dude. And the Mark Richardson Marketing Masterclass kicks off on the 20th of April. Now, if you're a company that still has a story to tell to Mumbrella's large audience of people working within the media and marketing industry, we can help. Whether it's an email on your behalf to our opted-in database of Mumbrella readers, ads on the website and daily newsletter, or longer pieces crafted on your behalf by the Mumbrella Bespoke team, we can help you talk to our audience. Want to find out more? Make your inquiry today by emailing our sales director, Victoria Seymour, on victoria at mumbrella.com.au. And that's all from us for this week. Thanks for joining me, Viv. Thank you. And thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Toodle pip.